0: Welcome back, fam. So as you know, for this series, I went to LA, the mecca of creative entrepreneurship, to find out how 10 successful working artists built their brand. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, I suggest you go back and listen to it. We talked about the philosophy behind being humble and hungry, that mixture of low ego and high ambition. And today, we're going to see it in action we've got two stories of people finding a tiny little niche and building a big-ass business. Our first guest turned a passion project into the largest art market of its kind in the world.
1: For both days, we're probably at anywhere between forty-five to 50,000 people walking through the door. So- It's a city. Yeah, yeah, in some places it is a city.
0: You know, as an artist, you gotta invest a lot, man.
2: Because maybe I die and then what? Things are worth more money, who cares? It doesn't matter to me. It's like, what's the difference between
1: 150 million and 250 million?
0: I have definitely experienced bouts of potent insecurity.
1: The feedback that I got was, oh, it's really
0: great, but there's no market for Asians. I mean, I really mean it when it's small business day. Like, it means a lot more to me, I think, than someone who hasn't experienced what I did. Chapter three, Ben Goretzky, we're going to keep the feel. I'm sitting down on the carpeted floor of the exhibition hall. I had an appointment to meet someone at 2, but it's 2.15, so he's late. I don't know what to expect meeting this guy. He's kind of a big deal around here. I mean, he's got a DeLorean, for Christ's sake. Like a real one. You know, the time machine from Back to the Future. Doc, Marty, you
1: made it. Yeah. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. Ah, well, it's a DeLorean, right?
0: How do I know he's got a DeLorean? It's parked out front, (laughs) welcoming thousands of visitors to DesignerCon. Ben is the founder, owner, and CEO of the show. And a couple minutes later, he comes strolling up. He walks me through the show, waving and saying hi to people on the way. Then he stops and unlocks this special little room.
1: Hey guys, I'm I'm doing an interview. Can we come back in like 20 minutes? Thank you. All right, awesome.
0: Let's do it. All right, so what is DesignerCon? This massive convention center has hall after hall, set up with booth after booth of hundreds of artists selling their work. And most of those 50,000 people walking the show are here for the same exact reason Ben started the show, because they love toys. Designer, collectible, artisan toys made for adults. Ben's passion for these toys began nearly two decades ago. He was walking through San Diego Comic-Con, and at the Tower Records booth, he spotted these bears.
1: And the bears were all the same shape, but
0: they all had different art on them from different artists. What Ben's describing here is called a platform toy, and it's a central innovation of the 3D vinyl art toy world. The idea of like, oh my God, you can take a 3D object and use it as a canvas.
1: I'm like, this is it. These are not toys. These are collectible
0: art figures. And I fell in love. Okay, so you might have realized by now that Ben's not really an artist. He's the only non-artist in our series, in fact, but he does run an art convention. His parents are immigrants from the former Soviet Union, which was not a very artistic place to say the least. So to this day, his mom still has no idea what DesignerCon is all about and why so many people like it. I think the
1: last time my mom came to the show, she walked it, she said, okay, and she went home. (laughs) And that's the best kind of response I could expect out of my mother.
0: Even though he sounds relaxed, running this whole operation is anything but casual. And learning how he's built DesignerCon is like a course in brand building 101.
1: It's not like one day I said, let's do DesignerCon, and this thing is going to be great, and it's going to blow up.
0: We're going to go through three lessons in this course, and all three of these things, every one of them, is something I screwed up when I was trying to build my own clothing brand back in the day. Lesson number one, find your niche and own it. So what's the opposite of finding a niche? Trying to please everybody, right? Well, when I was starting my clothing brand, the best definition of a target market I had was an age group. I mean, this is a little embarrassing, but I printed flowers on American apparel shirts for women Because why? I don't know. (laughs) Because I thought they'd like them? I mean, to give myself credit, they were artistic flowers. But I had absolutely no connection to the female fashion game. None. And that's just one example. I could go on. Ben, on the other hand. DesignerCon wasn't even the name to begin with. At first, it was called the Vinyl Toy Network. What a snooze fest, huh? But you know what? It spoke to their core audience. And when they sent out those first invitations, people were stoked. Our first year, we had like 100 people show up.
1: Wow, that's great. And we had like 12 vendors. Wow, that's amazing. We got 12 people to actually come to this thing and sell their stuff.
0: Wow, that's cool. I mean, this was a labor of love for Ben and his crew, for sure. But it was also his megaphone into this tiny little industry that he loved. Lesson number two, invest in targeted marketing. Okay, so yeah, what's the opposite of this lesson? Not investing in marketing? I wish. (laughs) It's investing in things that you think are marketing, but they're really a goddamn waste of time. Let me tell you the dumbest marketing tactic I've ever invested in. Foodie treasure hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I went around Oakland with my little crew of interns and employees and got really great restaurants to sign up to be a treasure spot on the foodie treasure hunt. It was fun, about two dozen people showed up from our little ads in the weekly newspaper and we filmed them to make a little video while they followed clues from treat to treat. And at the end, nobody bought a single fucking shirt. What I learned is that if you're not a massive corporation, you just can't invest in general brand building. What you spend on marketing has to very directly find the people in your niche and sell them the thing you're selling. If you think about it, this conference is an ecosystem. Ben isn't just sitting at the end of a funnel gobbling money. There are hundreds of toy companies and artists who depend on this show. Ben calls them his vendors. Many of them have been coming for years. It's as much theirs as it is his, and he's got a pretty basic deal with his vendors. They pay him in advance for booth space, and in return, he and his team have got to bring the crowds. So for us, it's
1: not really about making money from the vendor fees. It's more about covering our costs so we can properly get the space, get the advertising money, and get people in the door. And hopefully, hopefully, If we get enough people in the door, then we make money. Because up until those doors open, my accountant will tell you, we're in the red. Mm -hmm. We're losing money. Mm -hmm. You just spent how much money on billboards? Mm -hmm. Why? Well, I need to get more people in the door. Will it really get people in the door? I don't know. Mm. You spent how much money on this radio station? Did you do that last year? No. Well, why did you do it this year? Because... We need to go to a different audience. Well, did you cancel the other radio station? No. Why? Because we still have to keep that audience. So it's like, and honestly, it's paid off. Like our attendance this year is amazing.
0: Lesson number three, grow from the core. So I didn't get this one wrong because I never made it that far. (laughs) But assuming you've done the first two things right in brand building 101 you found a niche and you did some smart marketing you might be lucky enough to have growth opportunities lucky you just make sure you're not selling out your people in the process your core audience that is which sounds super easy and obvious until you are actually facing real growth you're taking this little thing that they love and you're making it bigger and you've got to make some tough decisions. Pasadena Convention Center has been their home since the show started and people love it there. It's got a small town vibe, but with 50,000 people, they're at max capacity. And Ben is convinced the opportunity is still bigger.
1: You know, if I can get 20, 30,000 more people interested in our vendors, interested in our scene, then yeah.
0: So his new challenge is convincing all these loyal vendors and customers to follow him to Disneyland. Well, not not exactly Disneyland, but right next door, the Anaheim Convention Center, a facility that can host well over 100,000 people. But a lot of his crew, his vendors, they don't trust this move.
1: A lot of people feel that a lot of the show is the fact that it's in Pasadena. And it's going to be a struggle to convince my vendors that no, the show is the show because of the vendors and because what we are showing our audience. By us moving the show to Anaheim, it's not like, okay guys, all of a sudden Warner Brothers is going to have a booth and so is Universal and uh, we're going to push the art guys to the back a little bit because you guys are small and they really need the space instead. That is not going to happen. You know, we're gonna keep the feel.
0: I gotta say, it's pretty cool he says these things on record because those are real threats. I have no doubt that Disney and all of its various subsidiaries would be eager to throw massive booths in front of a crowd of 50,000 pop art fans. You can be sure that Ben gets these phone calls. But he's super clear. That the reason DesignerCon has gotten to where it is is because of the support of his scene.
1: And if there is going to be bigger booths, then it's going to be companies like Kid Robot, Mighty Jax, Toy Cube, and uh, Pop Life. And well, I mean, we did it this year. We gave Pop Life a lounge, but we had to do it in our lobby. Nobody said, oh my God, look at this. They brought in a huge lounge. It's Pop Life. It's. it's it's one of the largest vinyl art toy companies in our scene, and we know the other people can do it as long as we give them the space. It's sad to you know, have this place that we've loved for 12 years and to kind of say goodbye and thank you for everything, but it's like you're not gonna live with your parents forever, right?
0: Ben Goretzky. You should check out DesignerCon. It happens in mid-November every year, now in Anaheim. Check out their website, designercon.com. I love the way Ben broke down his marketing investments. But for working artists, some of that really isn't going to make sense. Radio ads and billboards aren't in everyone's budget. So how do you launch a super niche art product on a shoestring? This next woman's done just that. Chapter four, Wendy Brian Lazar. Two words, press friendly. I met Wendy outside an ice skating rink of all places where kids were showing up for a Saturday morning skate session. To the furthest table okay. over there in the corner. Yeah. I didn't realize this was the busiest ice rink in <laughs> North America. We sat down at one of those little metal outdoor tables with our coffee in hand. So, what did you do today?
2: I just finished ordering like a 40 foot shipping container of stuff that's getting packed and leaving China and coming over here. Yeah. But yeah, when I first started out and asking people, like, how do you make toys? How do you make toys? How do you make toys? You make toys? They're like, well, first you have to fill a shipping container. I'm like, Mind blown. I don't know how to do that. I can't order that much stuff. But, you know, now, year, decade, a decade on, I'm like, yeah, you fill a shipping container, blah, blah, blah. Like, eh, I feel like I know what I'm talking about. Um, And
0: so how do you do that at first?
2: (sighs) fucking up in every possible way.
0: Wendy Brian Lazar, this woman who now knows how to fill shipping containers, has some hard knock wisdom for us. Through a series of rejections, mishaps, and trial and error, she's figured out the recipe for bringing a product to market. And she gave me some of the best advice around developing your brand identity that I've ever gotten. The power of two words. But we'll get back to that. She's the designer and owner behind iHeartGuts. It's a toy company. They make... Well...
2: Internal organ stuffed animals.
0: Yep, you heard right. Shipping containers full of internal organ stuffed animals. So, as a self-described weirdo, the things that tickle Wendy's fancy can sometimes be pretty strange to other people.
2: You know, in college, I made, like, bologna valentines for people or, like, head cheese valentines, and I'd send them in the mail. I'd made, like, a bread fetus and covered it with hair and jam so I've always liked making strange things and so I think probably my company is an extension of that of like what's the weirdest fucking thing I can make and and make it
0: so how did Wendy successfully launch a super niche and kind of bizarre product like internal organ stuffed animals well it wasn't easy Her concept was rejected by mainstream companies at least twice. In fact, it was the first rejection that pushed her to start her own thing.
2: I was drawing contract illustration for a t-shirt company and I draw happy fruits and vegetables. And they have like dorky little slogans like, we are the champions, or like, we got the beat. And they're like, Wendy, what other ideas do you have? And I was like, how about cars, bugs, and organs? And they're like, we'll take the cars and bugs, but we don't really like the organs.
0: So the t-shirt company didn't like the organs, but Wendy couldn't let them go.
2: My husband kept seeing me doodling these little organs. He's like, you should just, you should do it. Just do it on your own. Just start something and like make some stuff and put it up online. And so I just, I made some buttons. I made some stickers. I made a t-shirt and I just built a website.
0: She started with the basic organs, you know, kidney, liver, lung, and of course the heart. She went around selling stuff at arts shows and crafts fairs. And right away, People loved them, they wanted more.
2: People would write in and say, oh my gosh, this is awesome, my mom's an OBGYN, you gotta have a uterus, why don't you have a uterus character, and I was like, oh, I'll draw a uterus.
0: Things were going good, who knew? There's a market for cartoon organs. But selling hand to hand will only get you so far, especially when you're trying to juggle a new business with a new family. I love the fact that you wore your new baby during a trade show. (laughs)
2: You can't leave your baby at home if you're the woman. That's the problem. You have to take the baby with you.
0: Remember, at this point, she was just selling T-shirts and stickers. But she had this vision of her organs as plush toys. So she had some samples sewn up. If you've never seen a plush organ before, let me quickly give you a visual. Picture a line drawing of an anatomically correct heart, just the outline. Now soften the edges a bit and make it really simple. Then in the middle of it, put two black dots for eyes and one black line in a dorky little smile. Then picture that as a stuffed animal. Got it? <laughs> okay, so Wendy knew people liked them. But when she started bringing the samples around the stores in hopes of landing some shelf space, she faced her second big rejection. Her products kind of fell in this weird no man's land.
2: Because it's like, it designy, but it's also very weird. And then the medical aspect of it, I think, throws people off. Because they're like, I can't sell medical stuff in my weirdo store. Mm -hmm. And then medical stores, hospital gift shops, you think would be such a great outlet for my stuff that's too weird for them. Or they're like, this is upsetting. We want to sell, like, bears that are holding roses that say get well. We don't want to sell a gallbladder because that might disturb people.
0: Okay, so a little spoiler alert. She did wind up getting her plush organs into hospitals. And far from disturbing people, she's gotten some wonderful feedback. But we'll circle back to that later. I have to say, her trouble getting sales was not just because her products were a little weird. Bringing samples around and cold calling stores is a really common mistake that new producers make. I've done it, I have friends who've done it, and it almost never works. Even if what you're selling is pretty normal, They've got a lot of inventory already, and the easiest thing for them to do is simply not to buy your stuff. Plus, you're probably not talking to the right person. What you need is a distributor, someone who's got the right connections, someone that store owners already trust. So one beautiful spring day in 2007, a year or two after she'd gotten started, Wendy was selling her buttons and t-shirts at Renegade Crafts Fair in LA. And she had those plush toy samples displayed on her table.
2: And this guy walks up to me, and he's like, are, are these for sale? And I was like, no, they're just like for display. And he's like, well, if you get them made, I'll help you sell them to stores. And I was like, huh? And I was very suspicious, like, who is this guy? And who are you? And
0: His name was Dove Kelmer. And he was pretty much like the beating heart of the entire designer toy industry. Dove had a distribution company called DKE Toys, which represented over 200 small artisan toy makers. And he liked the plush organs, a super unique product he thought he could sell. So now Wendy had two parts of the recipe. She had demand and a distributor. But there was no product. Remember, all she had were samples. She had to figure out how to make a full production run of her toys.
2: First, I walked around to everybody I could think of and say, how do you make toys? How do you make toys? How do you make toys? And it's like, the shields go up and the mouths close down and no one will tell you anything.
0: Everybody was looking at her like the new competition. Remember, this was pre-Alibaba, so communication with Chinese factories was a little more difficult. But eventually, she found this lady. So this lady knew a person at a factory that made plush toys. The only problem? Wendy had to order a lot of them.
2: You had to have a thousand piece minimum for each design. So it was a thousand hearts, a thousand- That's a big commitment. Yes, and it was terrifying. At the time, that was a lot. I was like, I don't even, how am I gonna sell this thousand anything?
0: So how many designs did you order at first? Four designs. Okay, so this is 4,000 pieces that are just taking over your life.
2: Right, we fit, it was very Tetris style, like putting things here and stuffing things there. So I stored the boxes in my parents' garage. I was like, mom and dad, can I put these? Because we lived in a tiny apartment. And then, yeah, I would just ship stuff out of my house.
0: Boxes everywhere. But now, Wendy's recipe was complete. She had products, she had distribution, and from her experience at the crafts fairs, she knew she had demand. Now, in order to grow, she just needed to invest in some targeted marketing, but her budget was pretty wiped out, so they did what was free. Her husband wrote the funniest press release he could for one of their products, the Plush Rectum.
2: Collins and Rectums released for the holidays. They were number two on everybody's Christmas gifts. It was was full of puns and like, gather around the old Yule log, it was just like full of poop jokes. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just funny, you know, like a plush rectum. It's funny, like it's a good gift for an asshole, you know, like even assholes need a present.
0: It worked. The story got picked up by blogs and went around the internet. Their website was full of orders. And Dove was able to leverage these articles and website orders to convince stores in his network that there was demand for the product. And before you knew it, her organs were flying out of her parents' garage onto store shelves and into people's hands.
2: I sold out of the hearts immediately between Christmas and Valentine's Day of 2007, 2008. And I was like, wow, this could could work. This could be, I could see this like taking over my life and being my job if I just kind of Push through.
0: Getting good press is so important to launching a product or a restaurant or whatever you're starting up. Of course, it's free, first of all, but you still have to earn it. Just the fact that you're making something isn't news by itself, there's got to be something that happens to announce, like a product release or a new collaboration, or maybe even something bad happening. One of Wendy's biggest press bumps actually came out of the biggest mistake of her career. Long story short, in her second run of plush, during product testing, they found out that you could pull the ovary off of Wendy's plush uterus, which would become a choking hazard for a small child.
2: So the irony was that the uterus was not child safe. The ultimate child-making organ was not good for kids. So we were horrified. We had to do a full recall. We wrote to all the stores, called all the stores that had bought them and said, here's what's going on. We need to take all those uteruses back. We need to repatriate them to the mothership. We talked to some guy who was like a product recall guy. He was like the fixer for product recalls. And he sat us down in his office and he's like, this is gonna be the best thing that ever happened to you. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's great press (laughs) because you have to put it out there and say that you're recalling your product. And because it was so funny, you know, like uterus recall, who doesn't wanna recall their uterus at least once a month when that bitch is in there like wreaking havoc
0: Let's be clear, this was highly embarrassing for Wendy, but she went with it, and they went full out with the press releases. Company recalls uterus, and it blew up. They got on BBC, quote of the day.
2: We got on so many news outlets, it was insane. So it was, it was great that all of a sudden people were like, oh, now we know about plush organs.
0: So none of us are gonna stage a product recall, right? But over the years, she's pretty consistently been able to generate buzz around her stuff. What's her secret sauce? So you've gotten a lot of press, and is that just because people are naturally interested in cute fuzzy wuzzy organs, or is that because of relationships that you've nurtured over years?
2: It's more because it's a very press-friendly product. It's one of those kind of, I think somebody told me once, like if you can break something down to two words, it's gonna be press-friendly, so. Flush organs. You hear those two words, you just want to know more. You want to know why, who's buying these things? Why do people need them? Why do they exist? How is this possible? This is a product.
0: So two words. Got it. I love that advice. Although I got to say, plush organs aren't the two words that are going to grab me personally, but they work for her audience. And I get the point. You're basically writing a headline for someone. It's clickable. It's interesting.
2: And, you know, you make it easy for a blog or whatever to, with a funny press release, you just do the work for them.
0: You could say Wendy's kind of lucky because her product happens to be funny and unique enough to be boiled down into two words. But then I started thinking about the other successful artists in this series, and it's true for pretty much all of them you could easily put a couple words together that say exactly what they do and what makes them unique or important. Graffiti King, Designer Con, and in the shows to come, we have Depressed Monsters, Angry Little Asian Girl, and the creator of Star Wars Emojis. All of these people are complex human beings, like all of us. They're a massive collection of ideas wrapped up in a personality. And that's how our creative projects start, infused with our complexity. It's hard to capture the uniqueness of your brand in just two or three words. I just want to acknowledge real quick that the word brand means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I hope when I say brand, you aren't immediately associating it with something cold or impersonal or fake. All of us have very close relationships with the brands and companies and artists that we identify with.
2: I love my job. I love it. It's so fun. It's very gratifying because mostly because people write in and tell me how they create meaning for these objects that didn't have meaning before. It's just some stupid thing. Like a a kid had gone in for a to get a brain tumor out at stanford university hospital and in the course of taking out the brain tumor they severed his vision he got vision loss like he went blind during the surgery so they're like how do we fix this and his sister goes down to the gift shop stanford used to carry our stuff and bought him an eyeball and like put it in his hands i'm like this is your eye this is your eyeball and he was like holding it the whole time and i kept thinking about this family you know like, I kept checking in with them. I was like, how's it going? And just keep thinking about you guys. And she's like, yes, he regained his vision. He's going to take his driver's test. And, and she's like, the eyeball's still on the couch. Like, it's totally a remembrance of this thing we went through together as a family. And it always, um, I don't know. it just stories like that make me feel like I'm not filling the world with useless garbage, which I kind of am. I'm, you know, making things in China and bringing them into the United States. And I try, you know, but it's, it's a, uh, Stories like that make it seem like it's not all horrible.
0: Wendy Brian Lazar, plush organ producer and supermom. Go check out those cute little eyeballs at iheartguts.com. So on the next show, figuring out a solid marketing plan is kind of easy compared with conquering our internal demons, those little voices in our head that tell us we aren't good enough. But sometimes the process of bringing your work out to the world can be the very thing that saves you. feels cool, man, like something that, that helped me from killing myself meant something to someone else to put on their leg forever friends and family much love we'll see you next time here on working sunday music and mixing by william mandel with major editing support by david fox emily shaw and eric silver marketing support by amanda mclaughlin And produced by me, Ruben Lee, recorded in Pasadena and right here in Oakland, California.
2: Yeah, the first time I did Comic-Con, I brought a newborn, and I just, you know, I had my friends. We had a little extra help. Some friends would come down, and we'd just take turns selling stuff and holding the baby and selling stuff and holding the baby. So it was kind of like this group mom squad (laughs) taking care of this little baby, but... I don't know. It gets easier.
0: Is it tough juggling being a mom and running a a business? Sure.
2: Of course it is. Yeah. My kids, they're always like, where are you going this weekend? Because I have a home office. So they think of me as like always being around, but I'm working. But I'm usually around to like start dinner or whatever, get laundry under control. But, you know. So many people do it. It's not really that big a deal. I feel like women are very tough in that way and that we can do a lot of stuff. We're really good multitaskers. Yeah. It's just something that we do.
0: Hey, hey. So if you know someone who's grinding in the art world, send this show their way. They'll appreciate it. And we surely appreciate it too. It's the best way to keep an indie show like this growing. Thanks, y'all.